Good morning, everybody. Welcome and uh, glad you're here. Uh, go ahead and find your seats. We'll start in. If you've got your Bibles or your phone, or you can go to our live page. If you go to our live page, you can click there and get the scriptures. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Uh, that's our series through the fall. Uh, we always preach through different books of the Bible. And so we are preaching through 2 Corinthians uh, this fall. And so you can read through that book. You can prepare your heart, get ready for it. A couple of quick things. We have these in the back. So if any of you are really adventurous and want to put one of these in like your dorm window, you can do that or at your house. But those are in the back. They're free. You can take one. Um, and then also, if you came to college and like one of my kids did once, you forgot your Bible and you did not, you know, you brought all the other stuff, but you didn't grab a Bible, or if you're a new believer and don't have a Bible, we always have these available. And so um, this is the same Bible I'm actually using on Sunday morning. And so it's a very high quality, good Bible. It's got cross references in it. But we would encourage you that if you need one, we'd be more than willing to let you have a Bible uh, that you can take with you to read. Um, and so I welcome you. Turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to do something a little, little unusual, but not really. We're going to read 2 Corinthians all the way through first, and then I'm going to have to go back through it and break it down. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to put my old man glasses on right here. See those? Okay. It says this, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul is writing. Paul is an apostle. He is one... Uh, who wrote half the New Testament, all the letters that you see, Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians. It was Paul. He was, did missionary journeys. He went all over the Gentile empire. Gentile just means those that were non-Jewish. And he shared the gospel and he planted churches and started churches. Okay, And so Paul is now writing this letter. It's actually one of his last letters. It's his last letter to the church in Corinth. And he's written many letters. We have one other one of those letters, which is 1 Corinthians 1 but we do not have the rest of the letters. Um, and so let's dive in. He says, I call on God as a witness against me. It was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. Not that we have control of your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand by faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this, not to come to you in, order, in another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one hurt? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy because I'm confident about all of you that my joy is yours. For out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that I should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has not caused pain to me, but in some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. The punishment by the majority is sufficient for such a person, so now you should forgive and comfort him instead. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to confirm your love to him. It was for this purpose I wrote, so I, might, so I may know your proven character if you are obedient in everything. Now to whom you forgive anything, I do too. For what I've for what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his intentions. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you this morning for the reading of your word. Thank you that you are good to us and that you show us through Paul that Paul had to write some very hard things this morning some people here might have to hear some things that are hard for them. Lord, Paul says it in this letter that he does it because of his great love for them and your great love for them. And because he wants them to know and you want 
whoever is here listening or online to know that they can be forgiven, that you love them and care for them and that you want a relationship with them because you are the God of all comfort and you come alongside us. So Lord, open our ears, our hearts, our minds this morning, we pray in your name, amen. So last week we looked at the fact in our series, we're calling this the God of all comfort because God, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church after he's written other letters that were very uncomfortable. They were very confrontational letters. It's like when you get a letter in the mail and you know like it's from the IRS. Like you never get an IRS letter and think, wow, I'm going to get money. You get an IRS letter and you're like, oh no, what did I do, right? And so Paul has written two of those, oh no, what, I, what did I do letters. Now he's writing this third letter and telling them, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for how you responded. Thank you for paying your taxes. No, that's not it. But he's like, thank you for how you responded. It proves that you actually believe who God is. And it proves that you actually believe that I am an apostle and I'm speaking to you with the authority that God's given me. And so Paul's like writing this, and, and the first thing he wants them to know at the beginning of his letter, he's, he says, look, I'm writing this because I want you to know the comfort of God. And we talked about this last week. The comfort of God, that word means paraclesis. It's, it means to come alongside. It's not a feeling of comfort. It's not a taking you out of problems to, to like put you in your bed and bring you chicken noodle soup. That's not what this comfort is. It's a comfort of God and the power of the Holy Spirit through a relationship with Jesus coming alongside you to walk you through the issues and problems and things that are going on in your life. That, that's what the picture is that Paul's giving. He's like, look, Corinthian church, it's hard to be a Corinthian. They actually said in Rome, like it was, a, it was a disgrace that people would look at you and go, oh, you're a Corinthian. <laughs> you're from Corinth. Like if you were from Corinth, people were like, oh boy. And Paul's writing to them and saying, look, there's a God that wants to take you through the mess you're walking through in the place he has you in, in Corinth. And he tells them, you're going to face affliction. That's how he begins his book. He begins his book with, look, there are problems in the world. You're not going to get out of it. Something's going to get you. You're not just going to die peacefully at 90 in your sleep. Probably you're going to die a terrible death because all of us probably will or most of us. And that's kind of depressing. It's like, ugh. No, it's just truthful. And God gives us the truth and then tells us how he wants to comfort us and walk alongside of us in it. Oh, and by the way, he sent Jesus to die the most horrendous death so that we could look at that and say, well, it's never going to be as bad as that. And so I can trust God not only to allow me to die, but to allow me to come back to life, which is the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul is encouraging them. Now in the second part, Paul transitions. And as he transitions, he says, look, there's affliction, there's problems. I wanted to come to you to help you. I wanted to be your comfort. But you see, he says, but I couldn't. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. He's like, I couldn't come to you because I was prevented by God in coming to you. You know, I used to tell my kids this all the time. I always told my kids, I will never tell you that I, can, I will always be there for you because it's a lie. I can't. I can only be in one place at one time. And God may call me to someone's bedside or to some issue. He may call me around the world. He may call me to something that he's asking me to do that draws me away from you. And I can't be there for you. But I always told my kids, the one person who will and can always be there for you is God through the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. By the way, last week I said the Holy Spirit was an it. Isabel, where are you? Corrected me. 
So thank you, Isabel. Some of you need to correct the pastor at times. I'm not above being corrected. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. So I correct that in front of you now. So good job, Isabel. She caught it. So maybe you catch me in something this morning and you'll be able to confront the pastor. Maybe it's a game for you. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm humble enough to admit when I say something wrong, right? That's how we should be. And we're going to look at that again this morning as well. And so God is having Paul write this book. And now he transitions. He said, look, I wanted to come to you, but I couldn't. And there are some of you that are really upset with me that I couldn't. And you're going to need to forgive me. And not because I did something wrong, but because God led me a different way and I followed him. And sometimes we just have to grant one another forgiveness and patience and be like, okay. And even though we're offended and it may not be some egregious sin, we just have to say, okay. And that's exactly where we find ourselves as we pick up the book. Remember what the book starts out. Paul says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Remember the words Lord Jesus Christ are not first name, middle name, last name. It's Yahweh of the Old Testament, Lord, who is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, Christ means Messiah. When the word Lord Jesus Christ is used, it is a call back to the entire Old Testament to say this Jesus, this one I'm writing to you about, this one that came is the God of the Old Testament and the entire Bible beginning and end is all about the Lord, Yahweh, who is Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, the Savior that everybody's looking for. It's a loaded phrase for a reason. The reason you see it all over the New Testament is not just so you can skip over and be like, oh, Matthew, Clint, Shockney. Yeah, I get it. That's who you are. No, no, no. Much deeper, much more theological, way bigger what Paul and the apostles speak. And then he says, look, I'm with Timothy, right? Paul doesn't travel alone. He's not this lone ranger apostle. He's constantly got people around him. He's training up new believers. He's discipling people. And then he says to God's church at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Acacia. And so he literally says this book isn't just for Corinth. It's for everyone. It's for the whole region. So some people like to say, well, Paul was just specifically speaking to this church. Well, if you do that or if you say that, that means you could do that with every one of Paul's letters. So none of his letters mean anything because it was well, just for Corinth and I don't live in Corinth. No, no, no. Peter himself said that Paul wrote scripture. We looked at that last week. And it was the only time another apostle referred to another apostle and said, that dude's writing scripture. And Peter said that about Paul and his letters. And so Paul is writing and he says, look at what he starts. He goes, look, I know these other letters were really hard, but I want you to know that I'm starting my letter, that I want grace and peace for you. I want the grace of God on your life. And I want you to experience the peace of God in a way that changes and transforms you forever. And then he says, from our God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. There it is. You know, we don't take our titles for our sermons to be catchy and slick that we come up with. We try to take them right out of what the book's about, and that's what this book is about. And he says, God comforts us in all our affliction. Those are problems. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves understand and receive from God. That's why Paul is writing this. So we dive into verse 23. He says, I call on God as a witness on my life that I was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. So there's this argument happening in the church that they say, look, Paul said he was going to do this. Paul said he was going to come and then he didn't come. Paul's a liar. 
He lied because he said he was going to do it and he did it. Now, Paul's already explained himself. He's already said, look, the reason I didn't come was because the Holy Spirit changed my plans. Here's what you should say to yourself. You should write this down somewhere and keep a note. You are to plan your life in the power of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, allowing counsel, and you should allow that plan to change according to the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. We plan in the power of the Holy Spirit and we change in the power of the Holy Spirit. We trust him. We don't trust the plan. And see, that's what most of us do. Most of us want some word from God or some plan from God. And instead of grabbing onto the God of comfort himself, we find comfort in this little plan that we've made over here. And God, you can't touch this. This is the guy I'm supposed to marry. This is the girl I'm supposed to marry. This is the education I'm supposed to. You can't touch this. It's mine. And God's like, well, yeah, I wanted you to go down that path for a moment, but I'm going to turn you. I'm going to use that to turn you back to me. That's not the goal. The end goal is to what? Be with Christ. It's heaven. Like heaven isn't heaven if Jesus isn't there. That's the point of heaven is to be with God. Like the point of a marriage is not to have a house and a bunch of kids and cars. It's to be with one another. That's the point of a marriage. And so Paul is writing and he says, look, I couldn't come to you because the Holy Spirit led me in a different direction. But then Paul dives a little bit deeper into his heart because he says, look, it wasn't just that the Holy Spirit led me in another direction, right? Because anybody could say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to change and so I changed. No, he's like, no, let me, let me like dig a little bit deeper into my heart. I didn't, I call on God as a witness. How many of you could do that? Like, I call on the authority of my walk with God and my obedience to God. Any of you can confront me. Look at how I've lived my life for Christ and tell me I'm not following the Holy Spirit. That's a bold statement, man. That just opens you up to be like, oh, really? Okay, let, let me give you the list. In my marriage, sometimes I'll make the mistake of asking the question, well, when did I do this, that, or the other? And my wife and in her incredible graciousness is like, do, do you really want to have this conversation? Like, I could give you a list if you'd like. And every time I'm like, no, I, let's, you're right, I'm done. Like, it's over. <laughs> I know. Paul's like, no, 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 bring it on. I've walked with the Lord. I'm not perfect, but I've confessed everything to you in my other books. I've told you what I've done, haven't done, how I'm the chief of sinners. I've listed all of my sins. He lists in one of his books all the things he did, murder, malice. I mean, all the stuff that he committed. He's like, I did all of this. And he was bold about it so that he couldn't be accused. And then he says, the reason I didn't come wasn't just because the Holy Spirit went a different direction, but I think the Holy Spirit, he says, led me a different direction so I could spare you my presence. Like, could you imagine saying that to someone? Like looking at someone and saying, well, I was supposed to come to you, but boy, you, you better be glad I didn't show up. Right? I was supposed to come, but oh, I am so glad I didn't. Because if I did... We're, I was going to have to handle some things, and I'm so glad that, I that God allowed some patience for me not to show up. It's like most of you guys, and I was this way as a kid, right? You know what time mom and dad get off work and what time they're supposed to be home, and you get home from school, and you know there's certain chores that need to be done. 
And very few of you in this room, there are a couple of overachievers, but most of you in this room are not overachievers like this. You got home and the first thing you did was get something to eat. Then you'd look at your phone, watch some TV, and then you're just watching the clock and saying, okay, I got to do this, this, and this, and it takes five, two, three, six, ten. I need 12 minutes to get everything done, and they're going to be home at 3.30. So I'll start about 3.15, right? And you just are like, okay, I got to get it done before they get here. Because you know that when they walk in the door, they're not going to spare you. They're going to be like, what? Why? Why? Right? Paul's the same way. He's written them two letters confronting specific people confronting specific sins and specific issues in the church. And they have been taking care of these issues, but anytime we take care of issues in people's lives, it's not quick. You have gotten to where you are after 18, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It may take that long to get you undone because you're a mess and I'm a mess, right? And so Paul, Paul's like, look, I'm glad I didn't come because if I, would, if I would have come, I would have had to deal with things as a leader. I would have had to say no, yes, and you guys would have looked to me, you ready for this? Instead of looking to God for comfort and looking to one another to solve the issues in the church, you would have run to me for it. And so God kept me from doing that. Peter says it this way about the heart of God and how this is the heart of God. Peter, in his second letter, says, the Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So this is the heart of God. The heart of God, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet and just annihilated everything and started over is because he said he is waiting patiently because there are still people like you and me who need to repent. And the Bible says that every time a sinner repents, heaven breaks out in a party. A lot of people think that is a salvation verse. That anytime someone prays to receive Jesus and trusts God and surrenders their life to God, that all of heaven breaks out. That is not what the verse says. The verse says anytime you choose to say no to sin and yes to God, heaven has a party. Every day, every time. And God loves that. And it flies in the face of the enemy when you choose God, as we look at the end of this passage, and not Satan's schemes. He goes on, says this in 1 Corinthians 24. He goes, I do not mean that we have control of your faith. We are workers with you for your joy because you stand by faith. Paul's saying, look, if I would have shown up, I would have had to do something. I would have had to. And it's not that if I show up, like, that's my job. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to control all the churches. My letters are not being written and sent out to say, you better do what I tell you to do. That is not what Paul is saying here. And there are people that are accusing Paul of being heavy-handed, being legalistic, being mean. He's judgmental. Paul's like, no, 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 no. I genuinely love you. And I want you to know that in this break that we've had, it's given you time to figure some things out and confront sin and read your Bible and understand how to talk to people and say, that's not what the Bible says. I love you. Don't do that. And so the people are learning how to do that. So Paul's not the one who has to do it. And he's saying, look, I don't want to be in control of your faith. Look, I don't want to be in control of any of your faith. I don't want you to come to me and say, well, Pastor Matt says, or FX Church says, I want you to say the word of God says. God says, this is what the Lord's word says. Anytime Jesus was confronted with something and you look in scripture, he always responded back with scripture every time. 
They would come to him with a question, they'd come to him with a problem, and he'd go, the word says. The word says. If anyone had the authority to just ignore the word and make up new words, it was Jesus. And Jesus kept going back to the Old Testament that he'd already written because he is the word of God and saying, well, I already wrote that. That's already there. It's right here. The question is, do we take this seriously enough so that we can learn how to forgive, so that we can learn how to forgive rightly and not just let sin slip. And Paul is saying, look, we're workers for you. And our, the reason we wrote our letters is not because it's like, you better get in line. It's because I want you guys to experience joy. And there's no greater joy than to know that you're in God's truth. And he goes, look, you stand by faith. See, we don't stand by works. Paul's saying, look, I wrote to you to say, don't do these things. And instead of saying, okay, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you said, okay. By faith, I believe that God said this, which means this law or this rule is supposed to bring me comfort. It's supposed to help me. So I'm going to believe God and I'm going to find joy in his laws and his precepts and his statutes and his ordinances like everybody in the, else in the Bible said they did. And I want to know what it says. I don't just want to go by what the pastor says, by what Paul said. And he said, man, because I waited to come to you, you had to figure out the answers. You can just run to the pastor. You can just run to me and say, what do we do? No, no, no. You dig into the word. You figure it out. You test and see if the letter I wrote you is true. In P Peter's first letter, this is what he wrote. He said, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not, looking, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. This is a huge thing that for me is a verse that I have come back to over and over again. And I have failed so many times in this verse. But there are a lot of things that we have done really well as a church. And notice he doesn't say the elder among you. He says the elders. You see, many Protestant churches are just like Catholic churches in disguise. The guy up on the stage is just a pope. It just happens to be a Protestant pope not a Catholic Pope. The Bible says there's a plurality of leaders, a plurality of elders. In our church, we have three elders, three pastors. One that we're hoping becomes a pastor. You can pray for him. Like God is doing his work and, and it's not I get my way or Jason gets his way or Brian gets his way. We can't even set chairs up half the time right because we're arguing about how we got to set them up every Sunday. And those of you who come early and set them up, you laugh because you know that's exactly what happens. Right? And the reason we want to set up chairs are, all, are for all different reasons of how to care for the people that walk in the door. That's why our chair setup changes. We like, well, maybe this is a better way to care for people. Maybe this will help people. Like, that's a conversation we have. And Paul says, look, I didn't want to lord over you. Peter says, I exhort the elders to be like Paul, shepherds God's flock, not for money. Every one of our pastors is by vocation. I am the only one that isn't, and that just happened in May. I worked construction for over a decade when we planted this church because we wanted to model to the flock what the Bible says to model financially. Paul was a tent maker. 
He gave. Now, there were times when Paul did take an income. That's what I'm doing now because God is growing our church. And the the staff looked at me and said, hey, maybe you need to step away from construction so you can do more discipleship, which is what I'm trying to do. That's a good thing, but that wasn't my decision. That was the staff's decision. The other elders looking at me and saying, you might want to consider this. We think this is good for our body and good for your family. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to get fat if I'm not working construction. So then I had to start working out. Right? I know it doesn't look like it, but I have been. Because I'm like, if I'm not moving around in construction, I've got to find some way to move around. I can't sit all day at Panera with the SIP club. I'm gonna, that's just not going to work. You know what I'm saying? So, and that's my office. That's typically where I go. So again, it's, it's shepherd the flock according to the scripture, not according to your opinion. So for example, we give 15% of every dollar goes outside of us to missions. Why? Because the Bible says to give tithes and offerings. A tithe is a tenth. That's what the word means. If we are not modeling that as a church, how can I stand in the pulpit as a pastor? If I'm not modeling that in my family, how can I stand in this pulpit as a pastor and tell you, you should give to our offering? You should give tithes and offerings. I I can't. I'm a hypocrite. We're a hypocrite if we're not modeling it. So we have modeled. We're going to give 10%. That means we don't have a lot of money saved. We rent here and serve this place because they're very generous to us. And we don't have to take care of a building. And so that frees up more money to give away to missions. And we've sent people all over the world in missions and pastors out and missionaries because We want to do our finances, not, hey, the pastor's got to get paid. But what can we do to serve the body and the larger body of Christ? And if that means i got to work a job, then I'll work a job. Because I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this eagerly because, like Paul, I love the bride of Christ. I love his people. He goes on and says this in Hebrews Paul's, we think Paul was the writer of Hebrews, but whoever the writer was writes this. And he says, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. So the first thing we should be doing is offering our praise to him. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That word submit is such a misused word and misinterpreted word. It means a willingness to submit your will, surrender your will to a greater will. That's what the word submit means. We've turned it into this terrible word, but we're constantly submitting to people all the time. When you pull up at a red light, you're submitting. You're saying, I really don't want to sit here at this red light. There is no one coming. Like, I mean, it's 2 a.m. and I am alone and I'm sitting at a red light. Why don't they put a timer? Like, what is this in this town? Like, you're sitting there and you wait and you wait because you're submitting to the government's red light until it turns green. You're like, okay, now I can go. That's submission. And you don't have a problem with that. But boy, parents tell you to submit. Professor tells you to submit. Pastor tells you, oh, now we got to fight. You submit all day long and don't have a fight. He goes on, he says, look at this. The reason you can give yourself to these people is because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I have to give an account before God that you don't have to give. I have to stand before him one day and give account of how I cared for people, what I said, what I did, And sometimes that terrifies me. And that's why I'm willing to apologize when I say something wrong and said, I said something wrong, I'm going to correct it. 
Because I have to give an account. I might as well give it now. You're going to know when you get to heaven and be like, oh, there's the account of Matt. It goes on and it says, for they keep watch over your souls so that they can do this. Look at this. The same thing Paul wrote with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. If we're all sad all the time because we won't listen to each other, we won't help each other, that's not profitable. Nobody wants to be a part of that. But if we're willingly giving ourselves, willingly submitting to, the God, to, to God's word, willingly trying to figure out how we do this family thing that's really messy, then that brings joy, he says. John says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's 3 John 1, 3. says, for I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. Look at what he says. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That they understand what forgiveness is and they're responding to one another through that forgiveness. Like Paul is saying, look, I wanted to come to you. I can't, but here's why. And I just want you to understand why this happened for your good. And John says, look, there is no greater joy than to hear that your children are walking in the truth. Isn't that true? There's no greater joy that you have as a parent than for some professor or someone in the church or a friend to call you and said, man, I saw your son the other day. And like, he was having a conversation with someone at a restaurant about Jesus. He had his Bible open. It was like, man, I wish my son or daughter had that faith. I mean, you walk away from that. I'm like almost choking up now. It's like, man, wow, thank you, Jesus. You know, or an employer comes to you, right? Knocks on your door. You think, oh, I'm in trouble. And they're like, no, 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 no. Somebody tattled on you. You're doing way more work than you should. And man, I am grateful. Wow, thank you. And there's nothing that gives you more joy or him more joy. Like, wow. So the person that says it is like, I'm really happy with what he's doing. And the boss is happy. And you're like, wow, I feel good. Yes, that's what it looks like when we follow Jesus. That's how it's supposed to work. That doesn't mean we don't confront things, but when we're confronted, like Paul wrote them two letters to confront, we confess. Second Corinthians, he goes on, he says, in fact, I made up my mind about this, Paul says. He's like, look, I didn't want to come to you. I wanted to wait because I wanted God to do his work, right? I wanted you to experience the forgiveness of God. I wanted you to grant forgiveness to one another. I wanted you to figure this out together. And he says... I would not come to you on another painful visit. He's like, the last couple times I've come to you, it was so painful. I looked around and it was a disaster. And if you read Paul's first letter, you see some of the things that were happening, right? He had a son that was sleeping with his dad's mom or with his stepmom. Like, yeah, it's crazy stuff when you read. People were coming to take communion and they were going to the communion table and eating it all so that other people couldn't take communion because they were hungry. And well, here's all the bread. And they just take, like, literally walk up to the communion loaf and just go sit down and be like, <sighs> well, everybody else is like, well, it'd be great to take communion, Matt. Would you like to share? Like that was literally happening in the Corinthian church and nobody was confronting it. Everybody's like, oh, they must be hungry. Yeah, just eat a loaf. We love you. No, that's wrong. Like, don't do that. If you need something, we'd be more than willing to feed you. But don't take all the communion bread. That's you doing your will to fix your problem, not you asking us to help you with a problem. And so Paul writes this letter. He's like, look, I didn't want to have to come and confront a bunch of stuff. So I was hoping that if I prayed for you and Timothy prayed for you and we let the spirit work, that you guys would change. And Paul's like, you did. And then he goes, for I 
if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? He's like, you know, here's the problem. As a pastor, as a friend, when you have to say something hard to someone who's a friend, and you have to like maybe cut that friendship off or have some hard conversations, it doesn't matter how many other friends come around to encourage you, you still hurt deeply because of that friendship that's lost. And until that person finally comes to the place where they believe God and understand his grace and forgiveness and mercy and obey God, you are broken for them and it doesn't go away. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. He said, I could come to the church and you guys could put on a big show and have a big party, but the whole time I'm gonna be sitting in the back row looking up here at John being like, I think John might not know Jesus and he's perishing. And it's killing me right now. I gotta go talk to John. I can't let this go. I love him too much. I don't want to see you do this, man. Like, that's what Paul's anguish is. Second Corinthians, Paul wrote this. In 2 Corinthians 7, later in the book, he says, For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. See, sometimes when people get unhappy or we grieve them, we think we did something wrong. Not necessarily. You might have. But Paul didn't. He said, even though I did not regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. In other words, you only had grief for a little while. Well, why didn't their grief last? Look, now I rejoice, not because you were grieved. In other words, I'm not running around trying to get people to see, you're a sinner, you're terrible. Rah, rah. I'm like getting them to cry and like, I'm gonna make you cry. Like that is not our goal, okay? And that's what Paul says. That, that wasn't my goal. I knew it was gonna happen. I knew if I said this, I knew if I did this, like with kids, I know if I spank you, you're going to cry, but I got to do it. And I'm hating that I have to do it. But you can't like try to stab your sister in the eye with scissors. Not going to happen. So, so again, Paul writes and he says, but your grief led to repentance. You were grieved and you thought, man, how can I get back into right relationship with God? And with his people. And you said, God, I'm, I'm here. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for helping me. Change me, please. And then you look at other people and say, yeah, what I did was wrong. I, I'm such an idiot. Good, Paul says. And then he says, for you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. There was no broken relationship. I grieved you, I told you what you did was wrong, and you responded and said, you're right, and you repented, and the relationship is restored, he says. That's the relationship with God that we have. And then he says, for you were grieved as God willed, and then he says, for godly grief, look at this, produces a repentance, not to be regretted and leading to, um, not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. See, worldly grief, where we're just sad about the fact we got caught, we're sad about the fact that things aren't working out how we want, that doesn't change anything. It just continues to build more death, causes you to be depressed and anxious, causes you to want to kill yourself or kill other people because you're so depressed and anxious of what they did to you. But when you embrace repentance and you know that I can go to God and he will forgive me, I can be grieved and bring my grief to God and he is the God of all comforts who will come and embrace me. When that happens, you find life and life abundant and it is beautiful. And then you can lead other people to that life instead of just death all the time. He goes on and says this, 
I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy. I, in other words, I wanted to write a letter before I came because I didn't want to just come and like have to hurt you. I, I wanted to like write a letter and say, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming home at 3.30. The dishwasher needs to be unloaded. The carpets need to be swept. I'm calling you at noon. I'm texting you at noon at lunch to let you know that needs to be done. Love you, honey. I'll see you at 3.30, right? <laughs> Twice in the text. And he's like, now what's your response to that? Duh, stupid mom. Can't believe she's asking me to do something around the house, unload my own dishes because they're mostly mine, and sweep all the carpet that's mostly for me not taking my shoes off when I should. I mean, it's like, or are you like, man, I get to serve the family. I get to serve the body of Christ. I get to be, like, to, to tell them thank you for giving me, I don't know, a bed and food and a roof and, like, paying for stuff. Like, oh, thank you. I would love to unload the dishwasher and sweep because you're so awesome. Paul goes on, he says, because I'm confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. He's like, I, I'm coming to you in joy of what I've seen, and I want you to know that right now. Because I've written some hard things, I've had to say some hard things, but I want you to know that if, you, if I'm able to come, if I can come again, and this letter is telling you, good job. Man, I'm excited. So mom texts back at 3.30, hey, I'm gonna be an hour late. Sorry about that, honey. And you're like, oh, man, I would have had another hour to watch TV. Or are you like, wow, I got it all done for you. No problem, Mom. Got the dishes done, carpet swept. I'll see you when you get home. Love you. What joy. What peace in a family, right? Then he goes on and he says, he goes, I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart. Not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. People that truly love you will tell you the truth. They will. And they know it'll cost them by telling you. They won't just be happy for you because you've made a decision. They will ask you pesky questions. Oh, are you sure? I, uh, and then they'll listen to your answers and they'll pray for you and they'll, they'll talk through things, right? That's what loving people do. Paul is like anguished. He's trying to write this letter. He's like, I don't want to write this. I don't want to say this. I know if I say this, there are going to be people hurt. If I say this and I say this is God's word, then people in the church are going to have to confront other people in the church. That's going to cause a mess. Maybe we just don't have any rules. Just do whatever you want. Then we don't have to confront anybody. No, Paul's like, I have to obey God. And he's like, I just want you to know that everything I do is out of an abundant love. I'm not trying to be some great apostle. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. I'm not trying to make a name that the church in Corinth is better than the church in Antioch. That's not what we're doing here. I just want you to know how much God loves you through me. I'm trying to bring you comfort. I'm trying to bring you peace. I'm trying to bring you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want to I give that to you. And he said, so often people don't want it, but you guys actually do and did. And I have some real joy about that right now. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus said this when he looked out over Jerusalem before he was getting ready to be crucified. In the book of Matthew, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Paul understands how many times he's been beaten, stoned, and almost killed for speaking the truth. And he recognizes that the Corinthian church 
didn't beat him, stone him, or kill him. They repented. And just like Jesus, he recognizes how incredible that is. Because God's people throughout history don't like being confronted. They want to be right. They want to be God. And Paul's like, you guys didn't have that. And Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings to protect them. Yet you are not willing. One of the saddest verses in all the Bible of Jesus saying, everything God has done for you for thousands of years, written down, that gives you the stories, that you can see the faithfulness of God, and all He wants to do is gather you and give you the comfort, and you stay close to Him, and He'll walk with you, and you're like, nope, and you run off. And then you get eaten. <laughs> God's like, I want to, I'm here, I want to speak to you. And they're like, nope, crucify Him. With nothing to do with this guy. And Paul is amazed. He goes on to say, If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of us, to all of you. See, when we sin and when we do things, when we don't respond properly, when we walk into church angry and bitter instead of joyful and grateful, it affects everyone else around us. It does. Because you are rejecting the Holy Spirit's moving and working in your life, and you're supposed to help bring the Holy Spirit with believers as we come together. And so if you're not bringing that, you're causing a wall to be between you and the body of Christ, you and God, and it's going to feel weird. It's why most people don't go to church. Because they're not walking with God, or if they do go to church, they want to go to some place that's emotional, lights and flashy, so that they don't have to think about the Word of God. They can just come and have a great experience and walk out the door, and then next Sunday get another great experience and walk out the door. They don't actually want to have to deal with anything. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Look, if you have that attitude, you are hurting the family. You are hurting the bride of Christ. And the husband is not happy. When you hurt his wife and you hurt his children, don't do it. We tell every student that comes here, if you're new this morning, listen, we want you to find a local church and commit to that local church in Bloomington for the years that you're here in Bloomington. If it's our church, praise God. If it's not, we'll help you find one that's biblically based that can help you grow the next four years and become the person God wants you to be. But we are committed to getting students plugged in in a local church because whatever campus ministry is on campus, I was on staff with a campus ministry. I came to faith through a campus ministry. But I am telling you, campus ministry will be gone and you will be left with what do I do with the local church the rest of your life? And if you don't understand what a local church is supposed to look like, how it's set up, what's a healthy one versus an unhealthy one, if you don't understand these letters to the church and what Paul says, you are going to get tossed around like crazy. You're going to switch churches like underwear, and you're going to end up switching marriages the same way. Because if you're so willing to switch churches every time you get upset about something, you're already building a pattern that you're going to have when you take that into your marriage and when you take that into your family life. If you can't give your life for the bride of Christ, don't think you're going to be able to give your life to some other bride that's a mess because the bride of Christ isn't any more pretty than the one you're going to get. And so we want every young woman to learn how to be a woman in the body of Christ, every young man to learn how to be a man in the body of Christ and what the Bible says about that. And if it's not our church, 
and it's some other great church in this town, man, great, because I just want God's kingdom built. I want to praise, and I just want you to be in a healthy place that you can help other people be healthy. Paul goes on to say, look, in 1 Corinthians, his first letter, he says, but now God has placed each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? See, God uses this description of we're all different parts. Some people are a finger. Some people are a nose. Some people are a toe, right? You don't get to choose how God made you, but you do get to decide how you're going to use how God's made you. And even he says the parts of the body that are supposed to have more honor we should give less honor, and the ones that are less honorable are more important. For example, your kidneys. You don't think about your kidneys. No way. You look at your biceps, you look at your legs, you look in the mirror. You're not like kidney. Oh, I need to go get an x-ray to see how my kidney's doing today. No, it is a piece of the body that you never care about until it doesn't work. And then you're like, oh, oh. And you're like, help me, dear, help me. Like you're dying, right? It's like that part of the body you didn't even recognize and wasn't even important to you, but man, when it doesn't work, the whole body's like, we're shutting down, right? If you tear a bicep, you've got another one. And this bicep's like, hey, could you help me out? Yeah, I'm good, we got us. And so literally, we're parts of a body if we know Christ. And he said, if, there were, if we were all the same part, where would the body be? Can you imagine just a body full of hands? Like, no eyes, no nothing. Where do we go? We don't know, we just grab stuff. And then it says, now there are many parts, yet one body. So if one member suffers, this is what Paul just said, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Christ, and individual members of it. So yes, you're a body, but you're also individual. And boy, is that messy. And for those of you who aren't married, you'll learn that someday if you get married. You become one, but you're still not one. It's like, I'm still me, and she's still her, and I want to be one, but I don't like you. I don't like you either. Well, that means I don't like me. I know, this is a problem. We got to fix this. He goes on and says this, the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. He says, look, it's the body of Christ. He goes, look, I confronted this person publicly. You guys know what they did. I confronted the sin and everybody knows they've committed that sin. Everybody knows. Everybody saw them take the communion bread and sit down and eat the whole thing. And you're like, he's talking about John. That's who he's talking about. Last week, that's what he did, right? Everybody knows. He's like, the sufficient confrontation of now people are going to the communion table and everybody's got an eye on John. And John knows everybody's got an eye on him. And John goes up and he's like, I just take one bite. And he goes and sits down. Everybody's like, yes, John. Good job, man. Praise the Lord. Like, that's so awesome. You didn't take the whole loaf. Like, that's how our response should be. Not, well, I'm glad he didn't. You, I was going to get you, John. He's like, no, 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 no. The punishment inflicted by the people saying, look, we're going to obey God, not your whims, not what you want. That's enough. You don't have to take him out and beat him. You don't have to shame them like they know and you know. Pray for them. Matthew says it this way. When Jesus is explaining how we're supposed to handle conflict in the church, most of you have probably never even read this verse, but this is the verse that Jesus Christ himself gave to us to know how we're to do relationships, and we don't even teach this hardly anymore in the church. He says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, 
You've won your brother. God's like, yes. And you guys are like, oh, thanks, man. Thanks for telling me that. Isabel, thanks for telling me. I misspoke. I appreciate that. And isn't that wonderful? And then we all get to celebrate that Matt's an idiot and Isabel's not. And she corrected me and praise the Lord. And then he goes on and says, look, but if he won't listen. So if I look at Isabel and say, you can't tell me what to say. I'm the pastor. I can say whatever I want. Okay, well then, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. We record our sermons. You can be like, I'm going to listen. Oh, he said it. It's right there. Isabel's right. We need to go talk to Matt. You're not, you're wrong. You, you need to be corrected. It's recorded. Multiple witnesses. And then it says, if he pays no attention to them, then tell the church. That's the leaders, the elders of the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. How do we treat unbelievers and tax collectors? Do we beat them? Like if a tax collector came in, if the IRS came in right now, do we just like jump up out of our chairs and beat them and drag them out in the street and be like, we're not paying taxes, we're a nonprofit. <laughs> How do you treat an unbeliever and a tax collector? Anybody? You love them and offer them the forgiveness of God. You just tell them, you're not obeying God. You're obeying Caesar for money and you're obeying yourself. You're not believing in God. And we don't want you to do that. And so we love you enough to tell you that. So you don't hate an unbeliever. You just tell them, I see a lot of unbelief in you and I don't know why. What's going on? See, Jesus gave this as an example of how we're supposed to do this in the church. And like Paul, we may have to tell people, hey, Right now, we're treating that person as an unbeliever because here's what they did. Here's what they said. Here's the problem. We just went through this in our church recently. And it was hard. And there was predatory behavior being done to women in our church. And we had to confront it. And the person left. And it broke our heart. And there are people trying to track that person down to restore him, to love him. And he wants no part of it. And I don't take pride in that. It breaks my heart. Goes on and says this. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Forgive and comfort because God is the God of comfort and forgiveness. Otherwise, if you don't do that, if you hold a grudge, if you hold on to bitterness, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm it. I love you. That's why I said what I said. We care about you. Don't do this. Like that's how the church is supposed to work. And most churches, we just put on a good show on Sunday and we don't talk to anybody about things we actually see them doing or posting on social media. Because we don't love them enough. And in reality, the reason we don't confront it is because we don't want to be confronted. And if I confront them, I know what's going to happen to me. Galatians says, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Look at what he says. Watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Because you're going to be tempted to be prideful. You're going to be tempted to be legalistic. You're going to be tempted to be like, I'm right, you're wrong. And he's like, check your heart. Otherwise, you're going to go to a place that's going to be really dark and evil. Do it because you love them and because God is glorified. Second Thessalonians, Paul writes this. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. 
For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working they may eat their own food. Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, doing a job. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person, don't associate with him, so that he may be ashamed. He may feel grief. Not shamed as in we shame you, you're out of here, but grief. And then he says, yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's not like you hurt me, you're my enemy. It's like I'm trying to figure out, do they know Jesus or not? Are they a part of the family or are they faking it? That's my concern for people. Not are they obeying everything I want them to obey, but are they a part of the family or not? Because if you're a part of the family and you keep disobeying, it shows that you don't like the family. Why don't you like the family? Then he goes on and he says, in Luke, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Like if he sins, not if he annoys you. There are some people that like, they, they have annoying chewing habits, right? Like you sit, like last night, I'm sitting there eating some cookie crisp on the, crowd, on the couch. Don't judge me for that. I'm eating some dry cookie crisp on the couch because we didn't have any real cookies, but I already had three cookies at Julieta's that night, but I still wanted some more cookies. So I'm eating some cookie crisp on the couch, right? And Susan's like, what are you eating? And that is always code for you are being really loud. You know what I mean? Like, what are you eating? It's not like she's really concerned and wants some and wants to affirm me in my eating. She's like, what are you eating? I'm like, eating cookie crisps. She's like, every time you eat those, you sound like, like a cow or something. What is, because I love to put them in my mouth and then like, I like to bite the little pieces of chocolate off the outside. And then I like to, like, I'd savor these things. And then I let them dissolve in my mouth. And like, mm, and she's like, you are so noisy. Look, that is not a sinful act. Now, if I love my wife, I'll be like, yeah, I'll eat more quietly because I love you. But she's not confronting sin. She's just confronting annoyance. This is saying, if he's sinning, rebuke him. Susan wasn't rebuking me. She was just like, that's really a struggle for me right now. And I'm like, okay, I won't do it. And then he goes like, if he repents, I repented, even though it was an egregious sin. I'm like, okay, I'll eat my, it's going to be sad that I can't do this the way I want to do it, but okay, right? And then it says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I had studied this verse this week. When Susan told me to stop, I remembered this verse. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I do this again and I repent again, if she'll have to forgive me. <laughs> like it literally went through my head. Like I'm, I want to test this. I didn't do that, praise the Lord, because that would be so evil, right? But in me, I was like, like, she has to forget. I read this verse this week. And, you know, would you stop? Oh, yes, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> Don't do that. And that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about someone genuinely who is struggling. Listen, at FX Church, we will struggle with your sin till your dying day if you keep struggling. But when you look at us and say, I can do that if I want to and you can't tell me what to do. I don't know what else to do with you than to rebuke and be concerned for your soul. We will struggle with people long term in sin habits and problems. But we won't give permission. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love God who he's not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must love his brother. The question is, are they a brother or not? Matthew 18 allows us to find that out. You confront, you confront again. That's a long process. It's not instant. 
And then Matthew 6, 9 says, Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. I love this passage. It literally says, look, are you really about God's kingdom? Do you really want God's provision? If you do, then watch what the next verse says. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation. See, it's that temptation of Satan that we're going to be like, well, I forgave you and you need to forgive me. No, no, no. Humbleness. Don't bring, but deliver us from the evil one who's trying to cause bitterness and conflict all the time. If you want God's will, if you want his provision, God says, then be a person who understands my forgiveness and grants that and offers that to others the right way biblically. And then he says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and amen. In other words, it's not about me being right. It's not about me getting my way. It's about your kingdom. And then he says, for if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your father will not forgive your wrongdoing. That is a hard verse. And it's there to check our heart. It's not a workspace verse. It's not like, well, I forgive so I can get forgiveness. No, if that's what you're doing, then you don't understand who God is. It's I understand who God is and the amount of forgiveness he has provided for me. I can't hold bitterness against someone else. It doesn't mean I don't confront sin. It doesn't mean what I tell them is I tell them, hey, you're doing wrong. I just can't hold on to that. And especially if they repent, I can't be like, well, I'm not forgiving them. You have to. Because God's forgiven you. And half the time you ask forgiveness from God, you didn't mean it. You didn't change. God, please forgive me. And then you're doing it again. So be very careful, God says. 2 Corinthians 2.9 says, I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you're obedient and everything. Paul says, look, the reason I wrote this letter is to see if you'll obey. 2 Timothy says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the person, the man of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's like, look, I want you to be obedient in as much as you can before God because it's so awesome. And then he goes on. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew. Jesus says, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. It doesn't say convert. It says disciplined people. The word disciple means a disciplined person. Go make disciplined people who discipline their life for the glory of God of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And look at what Jesus says that we normally skip this verse teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Who wrote the whole Bible? Jesus. He's called the Word in John 1. Teaching them how to handle this whole book and how to obey this whole book properly, not legalistically, not in their own effort, but out of gratitude and thanks that you love this incredible guide for your life. Teaching them to observe everything. And then he says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age, so you better teach this right because I'm watching. <laughs> I'm with you always. And then he says in Matthew, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For, the judgment, for with the judgment you use will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. This is one of the favorite verses that you hear all the time. People, Christians aren't supposed to judge. No, we're supposed to judge. It says judge by the measure by which you judge. What's my measure that I judge my life by and that as believers we're supposed to judge our life by? 
Jesus, the Word. So if I am judging based on who Jesus is and what he has said in his word, I am making a righteous judgment for the benefit of the other person. And I have measured myself to this and said, man, I'm concerned for you because I do that same sin. And if I, if I didn't have Jesus, I'm going to perish forever. And so, man, I, I just want to tell you that. That's not being judgmental. That's being loving. Because of what God's word says and who Jesus is. I am measuring, not by my own measure of like, well, you know, you eating cookie crisp annoy me and anyone who eats cookie crisp, they're out of my life forever. No, that's your own measurement. God has nothing to say about cookie crisp in here. He goes on, he says, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Yahweh, Yahweh, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? We drove out demons in your name and did many miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This is Jesus speaking. He's literally saying, look, you need to check your heart. If your heart isn't the fruit of God, love, joy, peace, patience, if you don't see God doing that, what's going on in your life? Because there's going to be a lot of people who think they're saved. There's a lot of people who say, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. Listen, I walked the aisle growing up in three churches, and I was baptized three times, and I never came to know Jesus. I never surrendered my life. I always held on to my will and my life with an iron grip. Jesus couldn't have it. I was glad to add him for protection and a ticket to heaven, but I wanted nothing to do with him being Lord, Lord of my life. And when I came to my lowest point because I didn't understand his forgiveness, I didn't understand his love, when I came to my lowest point my freshman year and wanted to take my life, God sent a messenger to tell me about the forgiveness and the grace and the love and the beauty of a, of a God that, oh, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. I've been trying to do all these works and be good before God and walk another aisle and go to another church and read and do all this stuff. God's like, no, I just want you. And if I have you, the works will come because I have you. And if you have me and you're with me, you won't do stupid things because you'll be right by me and be like, yeah, he's right there. I'm not doing that. He goes on. He says, if you forgive anyone, Paul says, I do too. Man, what trust. Paul says, if you have righteously forgiven people, not excuse sin, but righteously forgiven people, Paul's like, I'll go with you. I'll forgive them too. I'm not going to hold something against them. If the body of Christ has decided that's a person that needs to be restored and forgiven, and me as a pastor am offended by that person, I've got the issue, not the person and not the body of the Christ. That's exactly what Paul writes. And then he says, for, uh, what, for what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, is for you in the presence of Christ. I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul says the reason I have to release that and trust you and trust the forgiveness when it's done rightly is because if I hold on to that, then Satan is going to get an opportunity for bitterness in my heart that is going to cause me to sin. It's going to cause me to have hatred. It's going to cause me not to understand God's forgiveness and grace. It's going to cause me to go to dark places I don't want to go to, and so I don't want to do that. And that's the scheme of the enemy. 
See, the scheme of the enemy has been the same ever since. In Genesis 3.1, he looked at Adam and Eve, and the first thing he said to them is, did God really say? It's always the first thing Satan comes in with. Is that really what God's word said? Does the Bible really say that? That's not what the Bible's. You know, you got to see the whole picture. Satan's always about, did God really say? And if you don't know what God says, because Eve, she was told by Adam what God said. She had to trust Adam and what God told Adam to tell her. She's like, well, I mean, God didn't like appear to me in a dream like an angel and tell me, so... Maybe it's not God's word. Then he says, you won't die. Even though God said they would die, there would be a physical death. If they, he's, oh, no, 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 God loves you. God doesn't want anybody judged. God cares about you. No, 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 everything's going to be fine. Another lie of the enemy. And thirdly, he says, you know, if you just do this, you're going to learn so much. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to see things nobody sees. You're going to be in places and power positions that nobody has. If you just do this. Was that what God said to do? It's the same lies we believe today. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. I mean, even if you don't believe the Bible is actually the word of God and God said this, oh my goodness, that's pretty amazing that the Bible wrote that thousands of years ago with a bunch of guys that were like herding sheep and stuff. And they get exactly our heart right today. Leviticus says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it's in the lifeblood that makes atonement. You chose, Adam and Eve, to go after knowledge. You chose to go after your own authority. And now something has to die. Blood has to be shed because of what you did. You have to see that what you did is serious. It costs people their lives. And God says, I'm going to provide a substitute. And that substitute's going to be a lamb or a bull or a turtle dove. I'm going to provide a substitute. But you can't kill enough lambs, turtle doves, and bulls to deal with your sin. And so you need to cry out for God for a Messiah that will come to forgive you finally once for all. And that's what the whole Old Testament is about. In the New Testament, Hebrews says, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to shed his blood so you don't have to. His blood is sufficient. His life given is sufficient. And that's what the Bible is about. It's graphic because it's supposed to be graphic. So that we see the picture of death. Because when something's bleeding, everybody knows there's a problem. And stop the bleeding is the first rule of first aid. And we did not stop Christ's bleeding. He bled for us. And he says, I offer myself. And he asks us to do the same. Romans says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you something. Do you understand that when Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, he's saying, look, the wages of what is done is death, but I'm offering you life. And Paul is so happy that they chose life. He has such joy that they chose to follow Christ. This morning, if you have never surrendered to Jesus, can I just tell you, do it. Trust him by faith. For the first time in your life, like I did in the lobby of my dorm, at Train Hall, at Ball State University, in Devorty Complex, for the first time in your life, say, oh my goodness, God is real. The word of God is real, which is what happened to me, and I'm done. And just ask him. Say, God, I don't even know how to do this. I don't know what this means, but I'm just done. And I'm telling you, it'll be an interesting journey because it has been for me, but he will not leave you or forsake you. And he will give you things of, of 
in your heart that you never thought possible over time. And he will do things that you'll look back on and be like, that was not me. So if you don't know Jesus, surrender. And if you do know Christ, take seriously Paul's words. That if you heard something that you're convicted about this morning, something that that stings, that I need to repent of, don't hold on to that. Go to the God of forgiveness. He says, I'll forgive you. Just go to him and say, God, I'm so sorry. He's like, I know. I love you. You're forgiven. That's what God wants. As we finish, I want to give you some quick, very practical things. Number one, forgiveness is not. Here are some things. Forgiveness is not approving or diminishing sin. It's not denying or excusing sin. It's not enabling or tolerating sin. It's not forgetting the cost of sin or ceasing to feel the pain of sin. It's not neglecting the longing for justice of sin. It's not restoring trust and making it easy for continued sin. A one-time climactic emotional event to deal with sin. That's not what it is. It's not waiting for an apology or an acknowledgement of sin. It's not a feeling or a freeness from sin. It's not a reconciling of the relationship. These are the things that, that if you actually look biblically, the, the Bible says this is, this is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is a free gift that's offered, and, and it doesn't mean these aren't dealt with. Here's what forgiveness is according to Scripture. It's a release or a dismissal of a wrong based on a just payment. Jesus absorbed himself in the destructive and painful consequences of our sin against him. Forgiveness is Jesus canceling the debt we owe. We are no longer held liable for our sins or in any way made to pay for them from this point forward. Forgiveness is forgiving others as God through Jesus has forgiven us, meaning that we do not seek revenge nor do we ignore sin. And forgiveness is forgiving is God forgiving us through Jesus, reconciling, bring us back under his hen wings to himself by restoring the relationship that our sin has shattered. God offers you forgiveness and he asks you to go out and be his messengers that offer the truth of the reality of eternity spent from him and the truth of the reality of forgiveness of your, of your sins, past, present, and future, if we know what he's done for us. Man, we should be excited about that. We should have the joy that Paul writes about here to this church. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the scriptures we looked at in 2 Corinthians. I thank you for the scriptures we looked at in Peter and in Matthew and 2 Peter and Hebrews and John and 3 John. Lord, your word everywhere continues to just be so clear to us who you are and who we are. Lord, this morning, if there's anyone here that has not prayed that prayer to surrender to you, I pray today would be the day they finally put a stake in the ground like I did in October of 1993 and just say, I'm done. I surrender. Jesus, come in. Forgive me. Give me joy. Make me who you want me to be and I'm ready. Lord, I pray they would pray that prayer this morning and they would tell somebody that they did it so that they can be helped in what that means. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that if there's anything we're holding on to, bitterness, that we'd release it. If we're not confronting sin when we should, I pray that we would do it. We'd pray first like Paul did. We'd be careful how we confront it. We'd do it with gentleness, but we would do it. And it'd first start with confronting the stuff in our own life. Help us to be gentle with ourselves, coming before you and saying, please save me, Lord. And help us to be that for others, we pray in your name. Amen.